0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe.
1: Welcome to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. And I am very excited about our guest this week. Just a second week since we started the show, Urban Meyer, a week ago. But today, Brian Harold Billick was born in Fairborn, Ohio. That's just outside of Dayton back in 1954. Grew up in California where he played both quarterback and cornerback at Redlands High School in Redlands, California. Started his college career at the Air Force Academy, then transferred to BYU, became an All-American. He was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, and after 20 years as a high school, college, and pro assistant coach, Brian Billick became head coach of the Baltimore Ravens in 1999. One year later, of course, led the franchise to its first-ever Super Bowl title. Finished with four trips to the playoffs, three division titles, a record of 85 and 67. Yet he has never coached again in the National Football League since 2007. He has since been with Fox and the NFL Network, where you see him now. And Brian Billick is our guest this week on Dialed In with Tom Brennan. And, Coach, did you know? that I'm told you still hold the California state high school record for career interceptions with 21. Were you aware of that? You probably were. I am now that, and
0: that's to make this clear. That is I intercepted the ball. I didn't throw interceptions. You don't don't (laughs) want that ladder. Yeah, no, that I, I was, I played free safety in high school. Of course, they didn't throw the ball as much back then, but, uh, yeah, someone pointed that out to me, and that's uh, that's uh, that's that's worth that's noteworthy. You know, you got Super Bowls and, and all that other stuff, but uh, that's something I'm very proud of.
1: You should be. I mean, there've been a lot of great players that have played defensive back in the state of California, going back to all time in football. You know, I'm always interested to know, uh, Coach. You know, you, your your family life. Uh, what was it like as a kid? And I know your dad was an Air Force test pilot. Uh, I mentioned you were born in Fairborn. That is the home of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, uh, which is one of the most incredible places in the world. Just a, off topic for a second. If anybody's passing through that part of the country, that Wright Air Force, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Museum, is it, just beyond description what a place it is. But anyway, you, you're you born in the Midwest, then you move to the West Coast. What was What was family like in the Billick family household?
0: Yeah, it was kind of, you know, like I said, my dad was a test pilot, and, and and Wright Patterson, which was the center for all the tests back there in the 50s, well, everything moved out to the West Coast. So we moved uh, to the West Coast, and he kind of, he moved around within the West Coast. How about this? There are five of us, I got, there's five of us in the family, five brothers and sisters. Uh, dad was 25-year career military. We lived in two places in 25 years. Every one of us was born in the same hospital there at Wright-Patterson. Every one of us graduated from the same high school, which is just for a military family that's unheard of, because he, he had the foresight of kind of centering us up in, in Redland, California, which is about 60 miles due east of L.A. And then when he moved around from March Air Force Base to Norton up to uh, the desert where some of the testing and then on the coast he kind of moved around and, 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 you know, we get an apartment, whatever, so that we could have a normal life grow up within it. Like I said, when, when, you know, when do you talk to a a military family where the kids all go to the same high school? And it it was great. Redlands was a great town football was King They they had won like 20 straight uh, conference championships. It's a school of about 4,000 kids uh, at the time. And uh, just unbelievable, there'd be six, seven, 8,000 people at the football game. It was just a, it was a great atmosphere to grow up
1: in. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that with a military family where that many kids grow up born in the same hospital and go to the same high school. That, that, that is incredible in and of itself. You're right. You commit to the Air Force Academy. So was your goal to follow in your father's footsteps? You go to the Air Force Academy, yet you're only there for one year.
0: Yeah, it's not, no, it wasn't, and it was a mistake. Because I mean, okay, so I grew up in a military family. My older brother uh, was military; he was uh, a, a, a pilot at the time. And and no, I'd never really thought about that, and and thought I, you know, I thought I wanted to go to UCLA. I was being recruited by uh, uh, Stanford, Cal, UCLA, Brigham Young University, Colorado, um, and but the Air Force Academy, and they came, and the way they do, and it's very, it's very impressive. And, and I, I went there for the wrong reason. I let my circumstance, and, and my parents weren't pressuring me. They were great recruiting parents. Uh, my brother was kind of pushing and prodded a little bit. Um, and I, it just, you know, I kind of got caught up in it to it. Like I said, I'm a military kid. Uh, have huge respect for that. thought it was the right thing to do. It was, but not for me, because my commitment to it. And there, you go to the, one of the academies. Yeah. It needs to be, you know, service education, and then football would have fallen in there someplace because that's what it needs to be, as, yeah. as, as it should be, and that just wasn't the case for me.
1: So you're there for a year. You, you go to BYU. Now, you did not grow up Mormon, and, and I know that not every kid that goes to BYU is of the Mormon faith, but it's the overwhelming majority of kids that go to BYU. Um, and I'm sure back in the 1960s where you're talking about, or 1970s, you know, you're talking about a very different time uh, at, at BYU. Uh, yeah. Did you ever feel like an outsider being a non-Mormon at BYU? Or, or or, maybe better asked, what's it like not being Mormon going to school at BYU? Yeah,
0: it, it is different. Uh, because, And they're wonderful people, uh, appreciative of the education I got, and just, just wonderful people. My closest friends, my, my tax and financial advisor was a guy I played ball with there. Uh, just just wonderful people. it was a great school. Uh, when I went there, I, I wasn't fully cognizant. I knew I was going to play tight end and they were throwing the ball all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to go to UCLA but at the time you go back and you remember Pepper Rogers they were on the bone tight end did, you know so I wanted to go someplace where I could catch the ball and BYU was just beginning to throw the ball all over the park so it made sense. Uh, and when I got there, I, I knew it was a Mormon school, but I didn't know. I mean, it's like 99% Mormon. Right. And, and I always tell a funny story. You know, a lot of people, the, the official name of the Mormon church is uh, church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So when you go to BYU and, and they have what they call um, when these young kids go on their mission, they have uh, a mission school that you come to and you kind of go through before you go out onto your mission and they will come down to the university and they'll work out and they have, uh, t-shirts on that say uh, uh latter-day Saints." so i i don't know i'm there so i'm just kind of figuring out so i'm over in the dining hall and there's a young lady sitting there so i'm you know red blooded american male i sit down and start visiting and i go uh i go well are you mormon or are you ldf and she looks at me and she says she says you're a football player aren't you <laughs> so she figured it out right away but it was uh yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, it was after a while. I came in. There were like 30 of us in that class. Um, over half of us were were non-Mormon. By the time I was the graduating senior, I was the only non-Mormon of that class. Wow. Still there. Because for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And, and not good, not bad. It just is. Uh, but it was so after four years there and 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 not becoming a member of the church it, it at at one point yeah kind of got to where yeah sure.
1: you know maybe it's time to kind of move on yeah absolutely i mean perfectly understandable and that's not a knock on anybody totally totally understandable right. you get drafted by the 49ers um the two hundred ninety-fifth pick, something like that, and, and and then you get a chance with the Cowboys, and I don't say that yeah. in in a way to make fun, of it because you know I I mean no you know I, I just think anybody that's ever drafted in any sport, I don't care, you know baseball they used to have sixty-one rounds, and, and one of the greatest players in the history of baseball was Mike Piazza, and he was like the fourteen hundredth player drafted that year, so you know I I, I never well, make like but you sure? but you get cut. And, and, and now you start going into coaching. But but, but back to the player in you. I, I'm sure when you, you got drafted, I don't care when you were drafted or where you were drafted, you had to feel like you had a chance to play in the National Football League. When you, when you were told you weren't going to play, uh, you didn't waste a lot of time turning the page. But, but, but there had to be uh, a point there where it was hard to let go as a player. Is that right?
0: There is. Yeah, when I left San Francisco um, and, and got cut, it was the last cut, and and kind uh, of <laughs> a true story. I get cut, and so I'm in my '67 Cutlass, which is a great car. So I'm in San Francisco. I'm going to drive home to LA. So uh, there used to be the facility in Redwood City, which is a residential community. So I'm pulling out, and I get pulled over by a cop. I guess I was going too fast or whatever. So he comes up, and, and I've got all this '49er stuff in my back seat, you know, T-shirts sure. stuff like that. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this guy will be a 49er fan. Maybe I can get out of it. And so he goes, yeah, well, you're going a little fast. And I yes, yeah, sir. I just got cut from the 49ers, you know. So, it's, you know, I, I apologize. He says, yeah. He pulls a, that book out. says, today's not your day, is it? <laughs> Take <Right. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> it anyway. But then I go back and um, – uh Immediately go back, and I know I wanted to get into coach. I can remember wanting to get coach almost as far back as I can remember wanting to play. And we all grew up wanting to be the big league ball player, and you know whatever. Sure. Uh, but because of growing up in Redlands, and the high school coach and the college coach were such a, you know, uh, such charismatic figures in the town. I don't know whether that's what drew me there. So so I go back, and um, uh, I decide that I'm going to help. Just basically walk on at at uh, at the uh, high school or Excuse me, at the University, University of Redlands, NAIA, small school, uh, uh, Frank Sorrell, legendary coach. Mm-hmm. I say, Look, I just want to, I'll just, I'll do whatever. I'll do film, I'll clean up whatever you want to do. I just want to be around. I want to start learning about coaching. And he was phenomenal. Brought me in, integrated me. Well, a couple weeks into it, my high school coach, his quarterback coach, hit a kid. I don't know the circumstance, what it was, but he had to obviously fire the coach. So he says, Come in, coach my quarterback. So that was one of the best years. So I go, so I'm now coaching high school ball. Um, I'm at the high school practice from two to four. I go to the university practice from four to six. Wow. Friday nights of the high school game. Saturday, you take the film off. Saturday afternoon or Saturday night is the college game. Sunday, you take that film off. So I got two, two seasons in one under two really great coaches. Paul Womack was my high school coach. Frank Sorreo, as I said, was the college coach. Phenomenal year for me to learn and begin to learn about the profession.
1: Now, correct me here if I'm wrong. At that point in time, you leave, Brian Billick, you leave to go to become a grad assistant going back to BYU. You're there for a year, and and then all of a sudden – now, I mean, you talk about an about face. Okay, you're talking about – you were just sharing with us. You always thought about being a coach. You're getting a chance to coach. You're doing it. You're loving the Friday night high school, the Saturday college. You're now at BYU, big-time program uh, as a grad assistant for a year. And then you leave to be a PR guy with the San Francisco 49ers. How does that happen? Why did it happen? Well,
0: you know, in between there, I go to the Cowboys. And and to touch back on your earlier question, I remember, because this this carries forward. I'm with the Cowboys on the last cut. Tom Landry, when he cuts me, sits with me for 20 minutes. Talking about my future, what I wanted to do. Now, Tom Landry had better things to do than talk to some flappy back end tight end that he was cutting. <laughs> but I always remembered that. And as I got into coaching and then became a head coach, I said, you know, because you're right. You, 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 when you cut somebody, you're ending a dream. You know, it's like the Clint Eastwood sure. uh, in The Unforgiven. You're not only you're not only killing a man, you're killing him, killing every dream he was ever going to have. Mm-hmm. So you know that's a big thing, and I always wanted to remember the way Tom Landry handled that. So I go back to BYU, I'm GA-ing, and, and it's kind of, again, you talk about fate and how things come about that you cannot account for. I'm a GA doing all the slappy work that GAs do. I look down in the trash can in my little cubby, and there's an article about how the new PR director for the San Francisco 49ers was a gentleman named George Heddleston, who was the assistant PR guy in Dallas when I was there. And i knew george now i was working on my master's in communication i had one of my best friends wanted to get into, into that business wanted to get into pr uh SID, that type of thing so i called george to say okay how does i got a buddy that wants to do this how does he go about doing that he goes well i'm not using your friend but do you want a job i go what are you talking about he goes i'm, I'm bill walsh had taken over the 49ers and bill was looking for a guy to be assistant PR guy and what is now known as the player programs guy that liaison with the, with the players. Sure. They wanted a former player. We were very small organizationally, not like they are now. And, and so he says, just, just come out and talk to Bill. Now They're not, he's not Bill Walsh from the 49ers yet. I mean, he's just yeah, taking the job They like, I mean, obviously like, a well-known coach, like. but it's not like you knew. So, so I go out and Bill, who could be very God rest his soul could be very persuasive. Basically laid out, I mean, when you think about it, just for me, it was exposure to the NFL. We were very small organizationally and the duties I was going to have. And I was so fortunate uh, in taking the job because he talked, you know, they basically talked me into taking it. But because we were small, so small organizationally, I kind of got, you know, as they say, you know what rolls downhill. So every little crunny job that happens, uh, I got, but it exposed me to the entire organization. John Ralston, John McVeigh. Who was the head of personnel at the time uh, allowed me when I would go back in the day when you used to, I used to advance games. You remember that sure, when the PR sure. guys would go out and be in the city all week. That, that's all I did. I would travel to where we were playing, be there the entire week, handing out clips and radio clips. And, you know, this uh, people, the MP people listening now are going, What the hell are you talking about? You know, yeah. we say internet and the could no. But you used to you have to do that physically. And then you'd make sure the hotel was set up. So I got exposed to every level of the organization. And John McVeigh would say, okay, we're playing in Seattle. Hey, go over to the University of Washington one day and look at this guy and write him up for me. So I get exposed to the personnel side of it. And Bill knew I kind of wanted to get into coaching, so it allowed me to kind of sit in meetings and watch how that works. So it was an amazing two-year sabbatical, as it were, from coaching that uh, led, uh, led me back into coaching.
1: So why did you leave there or, you know, you, 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 you go back into coaching, as you mentioned, the next five years you're at, what, San Diego State, Utah Correct. State. Uh, you're really beginning to get noticed now as this, this offensive-minded guy. I mean, you walk into San Diego State, you, you guys are doing all you're doing offensively. You walk into Utah State, it's one of the five worst offenses in the country, and you get them turned around to be one of the top ten offenses in the country. Uh, and, and there are people that are starting to recognize you. So you, you get you get a call then, and I'm curious if you would say this is your your big break as a coach. You get a phone call from Dennis green to be the assistant head coach and work with the tight ends at stanford had you gotten to know dennis green with bill walsh and the whole 49er tree how did that relationship come about and what was that phone call like knowing you're going to stanford because now it's the big yeah. time right
0: oh yeah i mean and that that is when particularly going up on the west coast and and knowing that i wanted to you know be on the offensive side and you're talking about san diego state don Coryell, the history of throwing the ball at san diego state utah state uh with tony adams and all that they were doing ahead of their time throwing the ball, and of course stanford university who is no more for offensive football and throwing the ball than stanford so you know to have three schools uh, that being your your on your resume so to speak i had met denny when i was with the 49ers and he was the assistant or he's the special teams coach and and uh you know we were close enough in age and denny and i would play racquetball together and so we kind of you know, we kind of hung out a little bit together, got to know each other for the two years I was in San Francisco. Uh, and then he goes on to become the head coach at, at Northwestern. And as you do, you kind of keep touch and, Hey, how's things going? And hope things are going well. When he comes back, uh, he leaves Northwestern, comes back to San Francisco. They're going to the, to the Super Bowl and he gets the Stanford job. And I'm at Utah State. And like you said, we had, we had a fair amount of success there. So I get a call from Denny and he says, uh, look, you interested in, in, in coming to Stanford? And, you know, it took me about two seconds, you know, to, <laughs> right. to book my flight and get there. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity and Denny became, again, God rest his soul really with all that the people, the fortune, good fortune of the coaches I've been around. Like I said, my high school coach and, and Frank Sorrell and, and Tom Landry and Bill Walsh, Denny Green clearly became the biggest influence and mentor in my life for the 10 years that I spent with Denny the three years we were at uh, at, uh, Stanford and then went on to the Minnesota Vikings together. Denny was just such a huge, I mean, everything that I've ever done in the profession has Denny Green's fingerprints all over it.
1: When you get hired by Green, you you mentioned he becomes head coach of the Vikings. Uh, You're in the NFL, uh, tight ends coach. And and then two years later, you're named offensive coordinator. I mean, here's Brian Billick. You're finally the offensive coordinator of an NFL team. And, man, you've got some players now. I mean, you've got some players, right? You, you set a record oh, God, for yeah. most, most, most points scored in a season by a team, most touchdown passes thrown by a team in a season. Uh, and now, Brian, I mean, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know um, uh, and just to, you know, pump you up here. I mean, I, I remember those days. You're now all of a sudden the offensive guru guy in the NFL, the hot commodity guy. That's fair to say, right?
0: Yeah. And, it's, and that's, that's real easy when you've got the talent you, that we list off on those teams. Yeah. It's real easy to be smart. The better players we had, it's amazing how much smarter I got with each good player that we acquired. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was an amazing time. It really was because, uh, I, I go to Minnesota, um, as the tight end coach and Denny's plan was, was brilliant. Um, of course, our, our backgrounds, Denny and size, eyes were in the West Coast offense. West Coast verbiage and style, and Bill Walsh's system. Uh, the other hot system was Joe Gibbs, and that whole you know Don Coryell, John, uh, uh, Joe Gibbs. And so he Denny Denny hires a guy named Frank Burns off of, of the uh, Washington Redskins staff. They just won the Super Bowl that was played in Minneapolis, by the way, that year. So Frank uh, uh, comes in to be our our offensive coordinator, and the plan is for he and I, and we're going to kind of integrate these two systems together. Denny, very forward-thinking, wanted, okay, I want to take the basics of the running game and the power and the counters and all that from Joe Gibbs, but I want to integrate it with the high-efficiency passing of the West Coast offense. So we're supposed to integrate this. And and we go along, and, and we go, you know, we're okay. We go to the playoffs first year, and, and uh, we're, we're, we're okay. Uh, the second year, and now we really want to get this integration. Well, you know, Frank, Frank was not he was going to do things his way. And, and Denny, you know, Denny, Denny was a brilliant coach. And Denny knew exactly what you were doing. And he wanted a certain t- teaching style. We had Tony Dungy on the defensive side. And, and so Denny was very adamant about, you know, like, less the Purex's knows, than how we're going to teach this, how the staff is going to get a grade, how we're going to in- impart it with the players, how we interact with the players. And Jack just, he just wasn't he was, he was going to do things his way. And finally, Denny, this was three games into it. Denny fires him, and so I'm like, he says, Brian, you got to come in. I just fired, uh, you know, it was we had day off because we had a bye week, and and he says, you got to come in. I just fired Frank, and, and you're going to be the coordinator. And so I'm like, whoa, <laughs> and and I got to tell you, you love this because it involves Chris Carter and a, a Ohio State guy. So I'm I'm this young snot nosed, and I have got guys like Tom Moore, sure, uh, as, as my receiver. Still coach. coaching now. Uh, john michaels uh, uh line these guys are legendary in the NFL, and they're now i'm going to be the boss i'm this snot nosed 30 whatever year old or and and i'm telling these guys what to do no this was this was going to be interesting so so i'm putting it together In my very first game we play the green bay packers of course minnesota and green bay so i'm nervous as a tip you know so I'm standing on the sideline and Chris Carter comes over and typical Chris Carter, who's really, really probably one of the closest players of all the players I've had in my career. Still communicate with Chris. Wonderful guy. But as we know, Chris is a handful. Now. Sure. And he, he comes over and I'm standing there nervous. He goes, Hey, Brian, don't be nervous. He says, you can come to me today because my medication's just right. <laughs> <laughs> I go, Oh, okay. I said, well, it, when it's not, you'll tell me, right? Cause I got to, I got to know a barometer here, so it just uh, and I had great players, and then obviously that '98 year we picked up Randy Moss and had Randall Cunningham quarterback. I mean, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal group.
1: You know, I, 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 I just going back and watching those uh, some of those games when they're played from time to time. I mean, what an incredible, incredible, oh, offensive unbelievable! Team. Yeah, it really was. Hall of Fame players uh, everywhere. We're back more with Brian Billick on Dialed In with Tom Breneman after this. One of our great sponsors, Living with Change, is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, drug abuse, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with the world renowned Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Living with Change created the Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other city or center in the Midwest. Find out more at livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impact nearly 4,000 kids and family every single year. CHNK offers an array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. Children's Home of Northern Kentucky also continues its care for abused and neglected youth who are in state custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. That's 1-844-YES-CHNK. Brian Billick with us. You're hired as head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, Brian, in 1999. Your first year, you go 8-8. Eight and eight. you got Tony Banks at quarterback. He comes over from the Rams, has the best season he's ever had uh, when you're there. Many may not remember. One year later, Art Modell, the man who hired you as the head coach, who had moved, of course, an uh, uh, uber-controversial decision to move the franchise from his hometown uh, of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, four years prior, he was directed to sell the NFL team uh, because of financial hardships. The league says you, you got to sell a team, so he does. Um, before we talk about your coaching run there in in Baltimore, I want to ask you about Art Modell. You know, I, I I'm from Ohio. I have a lot of really close friends and buddies of mine that grew up in Cleveland, big Cleveland fans, even to this day. Um, they, they can't express, uh, the, and I hate this word and that's hatred. I, 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 I it, it's just an appalling word, but, but, but they were so angry and so hurt and so upset about Modell moving that franchise from Cleveland to Baltimore. Who is the art Modell that you knew? Was he a heartbroken man, yeah. even though he moved the team to Baltimore?
0: You know, there's an element of that, and I'm I'm in my office right now. I'm looking at a picture of art on my wall because art, obviously, my perspective of art and going to Baltimore is totally different. And I can't tell you that I can tell you that going into it, my perception of art from the outside, watching and that whole thing, and 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 watching art and the way he ran things. You know, I wasn't a real art model fan going in. I had certain preconceived ideas about what he was, and how the organization was going to be. But I tell you what, you talk about when I made the good decision, I think on my part to go to join the organization. The first thing that jumps out at you, I, and I attribute it directly to Art, is the people in the organization. There are so many good people yeah. across the board. That, that doesn't just happen. You have to have that comes from leadership that comes from the top that comes from recognizing talent that comes from conducting yourself in a certain way. The organization as a whole had so many, whether it was Ozzie Newsom and Kevin Byrne Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, uh, you know, Phil Savage, just, uh, Shaq Harris. I mean, uh, Bill Tessendorf, the trainer just on and on. Everybody I dealt with were ended up just being good, competent, decent people. And that begins with art. And art was a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal owner had a great relationship with him now art art was a handful too because art as we know it could get very emotional and and you know i used to go up after the games and 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 I, and, and i learned this i would go up after the game win or lose and go up to the box and sit with art because i wanted to kind of temper if we'd won I want okay, Art. Right, no, I'm not the greatest coach of all time. We're not going to the Super Bowl today. Just let's let's. Okay, it was a good win, but you know, just uh, just you know, because you, you did. I wanted to get ahead of the curve, and if we lost, it's okay. No, I don't have to fire everybody. Let's not kill ourselves, right? It's just see, Chad to kind of car, uh, talk Art off the ledge on either side. Sure, um, but but because he was so emotional about it, but just the most loving caring man and obviously my in my perspective may be jaded i always tell it's a great story art never liked to really criticize okay but he wanted things done if he thought something needed to change whatever i remember he called me into his office one time that's the first year and 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 he's going on about some of the things that, that are wrong that need to get corrected which is fair and 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 as he's going on on, he looks at me, but he didn't want to. He, you know, it's well, now, coach. I'm not. I'm just not. I'm not talking about you now. Right. Right. Okay. I'm, I go. well, Art. There's only two of us in the room, so if you're not talking about me, you're being way too hard on yourself. Okay. Because we got to do. There's a lot to do. Yeah. But he was just. He was just that way. Always quick with the story. Now we were at the stage too where Art really wasn't involved in the day to day. You know, he was at the point in his life and. And, uh, the, the, you know, he wasn't orchestrating the club on a day to day, but we all had such respect for art. We kind of once we kind of made whether it was Ozzie Newsome and and, uh, 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 you know, the organization as a whole, we'd always kind of make sure art was on board and kind of knew David Modell, his son, who was the president of the organization, um, all very deferential to art to make sure that he he knew what we were doing. And, and uh, his lovely wife, Pat, she was she was on top of it, too. She knew. She was the toughest one. Well, I'd go up on the, the booth after the game but if we didn't play well. She was going to let me know about it. So it, uh, but just the the loveliest people in the world. I know Cleveland and I get it. I I grew up in L.A. And my Rams left and went to St. Louis, and I I get that. You know, there's the business. Sure. it was so new at the time. Today, it's common, you know, common practice, mm. right? It's just part of it. But but then it was so new and so raw. And and again, I so and I go to Baltimore, who their franchise gets ripped yep. out. So I fully, you know, I really get immersed and understand the vitriol that the fans, the Baltimore fans, now had for Ursay and, and the whole Indianapolis thing. It was an interesting dynamic.
1: Your defense in 2000, record-setting defense, the greatest defense during the regular season in the history of the National Football League. You get to the postseason that year after going 12-4 and 4 that season, and we'll get back to that here in a second. You give up three points to Denver in your first playoff game. You give up 10 points to Oakland in the AFC championship game. And in the Super Bowl, the only touchdown scored by the Giants was on a kickoff return for a touchdown. The way football is today, uh, Brian Billick, there's no way we ever see defenses like that again, right? No chance.
0: No, no. You have to realize the time. Our championship. Then New England's, then Tampa's. Those three championships back to back to back were all defensive driven. You know, it's the old cliche. Defense wins championships and offense sell tickets. Well, the league has changed. You also have to remember that was a time when we were kind of devoid of the great quarterback play. We were transitioning out of the Elways, the Marinos, the Montanas, the Young's. We had not yet come into the to the uh, uh Peyton Mannings and Drew Breeses, and you know that next level of quarterback. You look at the quarterback taking nothing away from the run, but you look at you—you you, you just mentioned the teams that we played. We played a Brian Greasy, no disrespect to Brian, good serviceable quarterback, but a Brian Greasy-led Denver Bronco team. We then played Tennessee with Steve McNair. Again, God rest his soul. I was fortunate to coach Steve for. For two years and great player, but we, they were in our division. We knew how to play Steve McNair, mm-hmm. uh, because they went, they, we, you know, we were all in the old, the old, uh, AFC central. Um, and then we play Rich Gannon, who at that point was just handing the ball off because they were the leading rushing team in the league in, uh, in, in Oakland. Uh, and then we go to the Super Bowl and play Kerry Collins so not exactly a murderer's row yeah. of quarterbacks that you have to go through that today just to answer your question directly it is different now because the defense today and there's some good defenses you're like like this this weekend you're, at some point you're going to have to go through three guaranteed hall of famers either Tom Brady or Drew Brees or Aaron Rodgers three you know really good looking young quarterbacks by way of Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen you got to go every game you're going to face some high caliber Pro Bowl, maybe future Hall of Fame quarterback, so the game is different. So to, to think that you win it just on pure great defense, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think we'll see that again.
1: You know, that year, uh, your defense, Ray Lewis is the NFL's Defensive Player of the Year. you I mean, you got Sam Adams and Rod Woodson, Hall of Famer. I mean, you got guys everywhere, right? I mean, just incredible, incredible players. And, and there was a stretch that year, and I know I don't need to remind you, but I, I, this is the stuff that I just find so interesting, yeah. is you go through a stretch offensively that year. The year you win the Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens, you go five straight games without an offensive touchdown. Now, you as an offensive guy, you've got to be losing your mind, right?
0: Oh, my gosh. You know, so I come in as this offensive genius. Well, that goes right in the toilet after the first year. because <laughs> It's like, does this guy know what he's doing? We're going through different quarterbacks. And we start the year out pretty good. We start out right, the year right. four and two. Tony Banks is our quarterback. We're throwing we, we, we beat Jacksonville, who we had never beaten. That was really kind of the big rival because – they had never beaten Jacksonville. Jacksonville was pretty good at the time. Tom Coughlin was yep. a coach, and obviously, always a, a, a rivalry with Pittsburgh as well, and a big one with Tennessee. But Jacksonville, we had never beaten. So, uh, and they've got Mark Brunel, and they're up and down the field, and they come into Baltimore. That was really the that was the turning point for us in that season because they jump up, we're down like 27 to 7. And I remember coming out in the second and told the guys, guys, win or lose is not the fact, point right now, how we conduct ourselves. The second half of the game. Well, we come back and we beat them. Shannon Sharp catch Tony Banks, brilliant throwing the Shannon Sharp down in the middle of the field. So we're, we're clicking pretty good. And then all of a sudden, we just hit the skids. Tony Banks just, for whatever reason, wasn't seeing it, was throwing interceptions. So I've got, and, and we're not moving the ball. And our defense is, is phenomenal. And like you said, we don't score a touchdown for a month. Now we ended up winning two of those games. Yeah. Which tells you how good that defense right, was. Right but I had to make the change to Trent Dilfer, who was at the stage in his career where Trent was only going to be able to do so much, but, but Tony just couldn't get it done anymore. Um, and so when we came out of that and, and, and the offense kind of, we found our rhythm. We started running the ball really, really well. We knew, okay, this defense just don't turn the ball over and run the ball. Well, we can win some games that way. And now, did we think we could win a championship? I mean, I'm an offensive guy. I think, God, we can't win a championship this way. But by once we got going, I got, no, yeah, we can This defense is that good. So once we change that mindset, we go on that 11-game run all the way to the Super Bowl, knowing who we were and making that and, – and I give Trent Dilfer huge credit uh, because he, he bought in and knew, okay, this is what we have to do. And he was at a time where he needed numbers to continue his career. You know, he, he had to give up a lot to not throw it here and not throw it there, knowing that, okay, we're going to run the ball. If I don't turn it over, this defense can carry us all the way to a Super Bowl, and that's exactly what happened.
1: So you win the Super Bowl, you know, you go through the next number of years, you go to the playoffs four times. In 2000, and, uh, what, six? You go 13 and three, um, and you get beaten in the AFC Championship game. A heartbreaking loss. You're playing Indianapolis. Manning is there at the time. Um, McNair turns the ball over twice, one time at the one-yard line, uh, and you only give up 13, but you lose. In 2007, um, things did not go well. McNair gets hurt, um, and you have a losing record. You finish your coaching career, Brian Billick, 85 and 67, five and three in the postseason. That's a 560 winning percentage. And yet you've never been hired as a coach again. I, you know, I, I was talking with our, our producer engineer, Dave Armbruster. It's the first thing he asked me when we were talking about you being on the show today. And I have asked myself, have you asked yourself uh, thousands of times, how has Brian Billick with, with the incredible nine-year run, including a Super Bowl title, all the division championships, that you've not been a head coach since?
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. The way it evolved, and and this is where you and I come together, and our friendship and working together. So I'm, uh, I get let go from the 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 Ravens, and 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 you're right. We go thirteen and three. They give me a brand new four year contract, and as you know, coaches contracts are guaranteed. So that shows a commitment. And then next year, the kind of wheels come off, and the injuries, and this that, and the other. And, and, uh, and they decided to make a change, which, okay, I get. That, that's what the NFL is about. Um, so I got to decide what am I going to do? Um, and I didn't want to just be totally away from it. Uh, at that point, I get some offers to do games, both for Fox and CBS. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to stay close to it that way. Um, because of my background, this is something I figure I can do and uh, would be enjoyable to do and eventually might be something that I want to do long term once I'm done coaching but it seemed like a you know a good move at the time and and that's when you and I come together and we start to work together really really enjoyed it and I told people all the time uh, the six years I ended up doing games I learned as much about being a head coach as at any time in my career and that that says a lot because what what would we do every friday tom we'd be sitting in some facility you know, talking football with players, general managers, coaches, watching practice, and then the visiting team comes in on Saturday, right? So we sat in virtually every facility in the NFL, uh, talking football and watching how things are done. So it was a great tutelage for me to see how other people did what they did. There were a couple opportunities that presented itself, but the hard thing for me was that I remember Jimmy Johnson, our friend at Fox. Yep when I first joined Fox, he said, coach, you're young. It's not my, you know, I don't know you that well. It's not my place to say this, but I'll just tell you this. I'll give you some unsolicited advice. Don't go back unless you're really sure it's the right place. Don't make that mistake that I made, that is referring to going to Miami and that type of thing. And and so there were some conversations, some people had approached me, but for me, I had a really good first marriage with Ozzy Newsom, the Ravens, Um really fortunate. And so I kind of got a sense that I knew what that relationship needed to look like. Not like I had to have all the answers, like I had to have all the control, but I knew what that relationship needed to look like. And the conversations I had with the teams I did just didn't match up. They didn't have the same vision for what that relationship needs to be that I had. And then the longer it went and, and because I was doing games, I think people also kind of figured, well, maybe he's just not interested in coaching anymore because he's doing this other thing. I was also working for the NFL Network. So there, there comes a point where they quit They
1: quit knocking on the door. Would you go back? I mean, you're, you're, you're healthy, thank God. Uh, you're fit. You're active. Uh, your mind is still as sharp as they get. Urban Meyer uh, shared with us last week uh, off the air. He, he said that, you know, or on the air, I'm sorry. He said, you know, uh, I had asked him about some of the sharpest offensive guys he had ever been around. And he talked about reading uh, a couple of your books. Uh, and 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 just how much he always admired what you did offensively would you go back now do you think there's any chance you you, you would have the opportunity to go back now
0: no i you know i always uh, I always joke you know it it's it they're always look they're looking for young and cheap and I'm neither <laughs> you can you can forget the cheap part because they're paying pretty good and i've said you know what because my wife and I've had this conversation here's what I need okay I need someone to give me Look, I'll admit right, I'll say it right now. I'm half as good as John Gruden. Okay. So just give me a five year, $50 million contract. <laughs> okay. But you got to promise to fire me after the first year because, you know, I, I, you have to be honest with yourself always. And, and although there are certain things that you look at and not the least of which is obviously money and the energy and getting back into it, but you've got to be honest with yourself. I I, at 66, and I admire so much the guys that you. Whether it's Nick Saban at 69, and Bill Belichick at 68, and Pete Carroll, I don't know that I could do the grind, Tom. I really don't. And it is you got it is a grind, okay? All coaching, but in the NFL, it is a 24 seven. There is no day. I don't care if you're on vacation. I don't care if you're on the golf course. There is not a day. There is not an hour that you're not dealing with something with regards to your team. And it's fine. I mean it's that's all you know and you're energized by it and it's the challenge. But it is a grind. And 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 I'm enjoying my life now. I'm getting to be around my grandkids. Uh your time is your own. You do realize you've heard it all the time when coaches do finally get away, they realize, who you know what? This is this is okay. You know, I I always I, I own a small boat brokerage business on the Chesapeake Bay. And when I do my radio shows and the like and stuff like this around the draft. It's right about the time we have a boat show. And I'm always asked right around the draft the same question. Well, Coach, how come you're not going back into right. it? How come you're not still coaching? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm sitting on the back of a 48-foot saber, beautiful day on the Chesapeake Bay. I could be doing that, or I could be in a windowless room right. looking at a left tackle who's the same guy I looked at last year and is going to be the same guy I'm looking at next year. Uh, no, I think I think I'm okay with what I'm doing.
1: Um, let's talk very quickly about the playoffs this coming weekend. Um, yeah. you, you got four matchups. Uh, let, let's start and just give me a quick synopsis on what you think of each of these games. LA, Green Bay, it's all Packers, right?
0: You know what? It's interesting because as I listen, and I've done my shows to the network on Monday and Tuesday and, and, and today and tomorrow, my radio days. And I'm listening to the conversation. It's amazing to me how many people think L.A. can really make a run at this. Okay, And they're basing this on the fact that it's it's Aaron Donald on the inside, Uh, Jalen Ramsey matching up one-on-one with Devontae Adams uh, with what the defense can do. Now, with the offense and the fact that Green Bay's run defense has been a little suspect. So if indeed the Rams can go in and run the ball and that defense can put pressure both inside and outside, Keep Aaron Rodgers in the pocket. And Aaron Rodgers, my God, I've been at this game a long time, Tom. I I don't remember a quarterback playing as poised, as confident, as calm as Aaron Rodgers is right now. It's just spectacular what he and I mean, it's it, it is really good. So I'm like you now. Of course, I'm also an LA guy that grew up with where the Rams always had to go to Minnesota and Chicago and Green Bay to get through the playoffs, and never played where there. So my pre, you know, my prior prejudices are coming through. It's hard for me to see that this isn't Green Bay all the way. But that defense and the way it matches up, it, you know, we'll, we'll have to see.
1: Okay. Baltimore, your old team uh, at Buffalo, this has a chance to be a great game. I mean, they all do, but this has oh, a chance to exactly. be a special game. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think top to bottom, Baltimore is the best team in the NFL, offense, defense. And then you throw in the special teams, which we always talk about, yeah. but we really don't. Well, They got Sam Cook. They got Justin Tucker. That's a huge, huge advantage for them. So top to bottom, I think that it, with all due respect to Kansas City and Green Bay and New Orleans, I think they're the best team in the NFL. Now, they obviously have to deliver. Lamar Jackson, spectacular. Um, the Tennessee game was interesting because you can see how you need to play Lamar Jackson. Yeah. you got to keep the, the, the playing field horizontal. Don't let him get around, but you, you don't blink. Because if you let him in that one time, like he did, boy, 48 yeah, yards, two minutes to go in the, in the half, you know, and, and turns it totally around. Uh, the defense is really good, but Buffalo and, and Josh Allen, what the transformation he's made from coming out of Wyoming and low completion percentage, you remind me of Kyle Bowler, uh, that he just did. It just, and then the first two years, and then this year, he has been spectacular. Not only throwing the ball, but running the ball. The defense is really good. They got these, you know, obviously when they got Diggs and this young rookie, uh, Gabriel Davis, They've got some weapons now. They're going to challenge the Ravens. Uh, but the Ravens, I think are the most complete team. So you're right. This is going to be a spectacular game. Uh, both quarterbacks are spectacular. If they can semi-contain Lamar the way they did last year, they played him last year in week 14. Lamar only had 40 uh, yards rushing and 11 carries. Now he had three touchdown passes. So you got to be better on the back end, but I think Sean McDermott, they kind of have an idea how to play the Ravens. They got to deliver. It's going to be a great game.
1: Cleveland, Kansas City. Um, I, I don't know how many people were stunned that Cleveland beat Pittsburgh, perhaps in the fashion that they did beat them and, and, and the whole Ben Roethlisberger thing. And that's a different conversation for a different time. Does Cleveland have any chance in Kansas City?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm in the middle of Columbus, Ohio, so if I want to get out on my bike today and not get run over, i got to say yes. Okay? But but this this is going to be a hill to climb. You know, first off, Andy Reid and Kansas City, how good are they coming off a bye? I mean, the numbers are there. They're spectacular. They have so many offensive weapons. Now, uh, yes, is, is, is Cleveland, do they have the running game? Baker Mayfield, when he plays within himself, that defense, can they do the things that you have to do to beat Kansas City? Sure they can. The problem is you've got to do it all. Can't give up the vertical, make them go underneath, come up and rally up. When you you know cut down the time uh, the, the possessions. When you do get it, you got to grind it out. Keep the time of possession. You got to run the ball well, and you got to score touchdowns, not field goals. Can Cleveland do that? Sure, they can, but they've got to do it all, and that's a lot to ask.
1: And then the, the, the game everybody is so excited about, and rightfully so. And look, it might be two guys who are, are, are not what they once were, although I think you can make the argument Tom Brady's playing as well right now as he has at any point in maybe the last two years, three years. Uh, but you have Tampa Bay, Brady and the Bucks taking on Drew Brees and the Saints in New Orleans.
0: Yeah, may you remember what I was saying was when we were together doing games. I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. That's right. I mean, these guys have the chance to be this. This is going to be spectacular. And I've been only half jokingly all week saying that I think Bruce Arians and Tom Brady have doked the league. I think they purposely looked like hell for three quarters of the season <laughs> just to trick anybody into thinking, ah, oh, we're not very good. And now this last uh, last four or five games, they've been spectacular. Brady has found that balance of small ball Brady, but then when you're presented with the big play, when you got Godwin and Evans and A.B. and uh, Antonio Brown, you're going to be presented with opportunities to make the big play. Rather than forcing it down the field when it presents itself, he's going to take it. Uh, the defense is solid. I'm going to be interested to see. And, and But then on the, by the same token, New Orleans, boy, that, that line, they, they rival Kansas City in terms of talent on the offensive side. beyond yeah. Drew Brees. They got Thomas. They got Cook. They got Taysom Hill. They've got Alvin Kamara. They got Murray behind. They've got so many weapons. Um, this is going to be a challenge. I think they're going to need to take a page out of the Chicago playbook, does the Tampa Bay defense and Todd Bowles. Don't give up the big play. Yes, Breeze is capable of methodically going down the field, but if you shorten the game where Chicago couldn't deliver offensively yeah. with fewer possessions, cause that's really what you're doing. Obviously, New Orleans and Drew Brees, you know, can can uh, or or Tampa Bay can do that. They can deliver on the offensive side. So I think reducing the possessions, uh, don't give up the big play, make them go the length of the field. I think they, you know, this this could be a heck of a game. There's no way it's that blowout that we saw midway through the season, which was just just unbelievably ugly. Tampa just didn't have anything about them. Um, I'd be shocked if we saw that same type game.
1: 2019, you're inducted into the Baltimore Ravens Ring of Honor. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure uh, that anybody, uh, uh, until it happens to you, can describe what it's like to know that whether it's your kids or your grandkids or your wife, Kim, or, you know, wh- whoever it might be, to see your name. You know, you walk into these stadiums and you, you look around and you see those names in, in different places. And, man, the memories it brings back. And now yours is is there for the Baltimore Ravens. and And, you know – you had a chance this year, you shared with us before we, we got started today, that you were coaching one of your grandson's uh, football teams yeah. uh, this year. And, and, and a man, isn't it amazing? I mean, from a guy from Redlands, California, oh, and, 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 and everything that's happened to you in your life, you've been so blessed and fortunate. And, you know, been a long days, a lot of long days, and a lot of long nights and the grind. And, and to thank here you are now, uh, you're in the, the Ravens Ring of Honor, um, and, and now you're coaching your grandkids football team. Does it get any better than that? Yeah, that, that was a special
0: moment. If for no other reason that again, my grandson, they, they've seen clips in the light, but they don't really know me in that. That's path. right. So so to be in that stadium and and to see that 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 was special. and, and I you know you, you get introduced, you come out in the fans. and I'm thinking, okay, there'll be one guy up in the 15th row going, oh yeah, I remember him and that's about it. No, the fans were, and the number of players that had come back. That was, that was, uh, that was special, you know, uh, and, and to have my grandkids see that. Of course, then the, two seconds after that, all they want to do is get OBJ's autograph. So they're <laughs> scrambling around trying to, uh, and, but yeah, and then now to be in Columbus and be around coaching my, my, my third grade, uh, uh, football team. That was great, but it's a different, it's a different life now, you know, because now it's, you know, okay, do you have your helmet? All right. Are your shoes tied? That's, <laughs> these are the big pertinent questions you have in in running this team now. Okay, do you know what direction we're going? So all I got to tell you this. This, this, is, this is a true story. So so I told the kids we were playing the game. I said, okay, guys, if you win this game, I'm going to bring out the Super Bowl trophy and you all can have a picture with it. Because I have a replica here in my office that I have. So I thought they'd be get a big kick out of that. So we win the game. And so the next next week, I come out to practice, and I bring the Super Bowl trophy, and we're all going to take pictures. So this kid, the one kid, he comes up, he's a great kid, and he goes, uh, he says, "Now, always ask." Me. He says, No now you were a coach, right?" I go, "Yeah, yeah." He says, of, "Of the Baltimore Ravens." I said, "Yes, sir. I sure was." He says, "And you won a Super Bowl?" I said, "We surely did." He says, "That's amazing. That's really cool because most of those guys are dead." <laughs> <laughs> I go well. There's a few of us still hanging around here. We're okay. So it's 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 amazing to see how they process all this.
1: Oh, that is priceless! And what a great way to uh, to end this chat, uh, Brian Billick. I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, you you were such an incredible partner to me and helped me so much. And I'm forever thankful. And uh, and and such a good friend. And tell uh, Kim and the girls and the grandkids and everybody hello. And uh, and God bless you, brother. Thanks for your time today. We'll do it. Brian Billick, our guest. We dialed in with Tom Brenneman. We'll look forward to catching up with you next week on the Believe Network. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.